They say the apple never falls too far from the tree. It's strange because I'm really good friends with my biological father, but we're not, we're not a whole lot alike. My dad thinks mayonnaise is spicy. Um, I could give you another thousand reasons that we're not alike, but we're very, very close. My dad has probably 12 television shows he watches. This is a true story, hand on the Bible. My dad has never missed a season of Survivor. It's been his 30, I think it's 38 seasons. I asked him the other day, I swear it is. Google it. Because it comes out twice a year on a lot of seasons. Yeah, I promise you. Look it up, BB. I'm not exaggerating. I asked him the other day, I said, do you ever feel like anything's wrong with that? 38 seasons of Survivor and you haven't missed one? Am I the only one? Has anyone watched more than three seasons of Survivor? Um, I don't even know it's such a thing. It came on like when I was 44 seasons. Sorry, I didn't exaggerate it enough. First thing I thought was, people have been watching 44 seasons. That's not normal. My, uh, my dad is obsessed with The Bachelor. Um, do you know the new Bachelor show is coming out and the guy's like 72 years old? Are we, that, are we that bored? I think his name's Gary. The Golden Bachelor. I've never really had a lot of television shows. I did have one, and Miriam's going to put the slide up. I was, I loved this show. I loved it. Um, do y'all remember this? And some of you young people, did you watch it, Michael? You watch that show? You know the premise is you can get in a time machine and go back into the past. And as a kid, when I watched that show, I, I mean, it took my imagination bonkers. Wouldn't you love to get in a time machine right now and go anywhere you wanted to go? Think about it in your mind right now, where would you go? South Carolina fans will go back to 1969, the only championship you ever won. <laughs> won the ACC championship. I mean, can you imagine all of a sudden we just get in a time machine, I hit a button, you fly through space, and then all of a sudden, uh, there's a man named Yeshua who's spreading rumors that he's God's son. I would love that. I'm, I, I think it's why we like The Chosen is because you can kind of visualize maybe what it was like. Today, I'm going to read more today off a sheet of paper than I have in 20 years of ministry. But I think it's worth it because we're in the middle of a series looking at five habits of yada. Yada is this weird Hebrew word that basically means deep connection with God. That's why we wear marriage ring. Uh, no one in here needs an explanation of why this is on my finger. I belong to Wendy. Wendy belongs to me. How odd would it be if I introduced on stage today a few of my girlfriends and my wife? You would be like, well, that's a little bit odd. But from the father's perspective, when we have anything or anyone or anywhere in our lives that are more important to us than he is, he's a jealous God. And uh, his, his norm is probably not our norm. If I could get you into a time machine right now, over to the Middle East, and it's not like 10 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, if you're taking notes, maybe write this down, write it on your phone, or just take some mental notes, what would the early church look like? What would it look like? Have you, have you asked yourself this question recently? Where did Jesus build a building to recruit people to to keep them? You're not going to find that 
the early church compared to now, this is a really awkward conversation. Most people have, most people that love God with their whole hearts have no idea what the early church was like. And I'm going to read an excerpt out of a book here in a second, but before we do that, let's recap the series we're in. Miriam, if we can put the, the circle diagram on the slide. This is a simple diagram from Acts 2.42 where I wish I could get us in the time machine. This is what the early church did. The first word up there is straight out of Acts 2.42. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The continually devoted themselves is that early church Christians were radically yielded to God. Most early church Christians, well, all early church Christians were putting their lives on the line to identify with this Galilean odd rabbi. Then they really devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, they could not get their hands on the word. One of the biggest blessings we have since uh, really 1600s, because it took 100 years after the printing press, the fact that you can go to any store around here and buy this, it's not normal. You're going to meet people in heaven one day that lost their lives to get this in print. Well, they didn't have it in print. So what were they listening to? I told you guys I had the strangest experience with God at the gym, at the gymnasium about six months ago. I was on an elliptical machine, and I had an open vision. I, I did not feel spiritual at all. I was like, what is that, Holy Spirit? And I saw these eight men. They were circled around. They were praying what looked like violently praying, like something you see in the underground church in China. And he said, I gave, you, I gave you a glimpse into the church of Antioch. So these early, these early Christians, they didn't have a Bible, but they were listening to the apostles' teaching, many of whom walked with the Lord Jesus Christ himself or Paul was led into a desert for 15 years, 16 years on that long journey, three years, just him and Jesus, and then a lot more training. Well, the third thing, they devoted themselves to what we call vulnerable community. What Joanna preached last week or taught was basically koinonia. It's an extreme Compared to, at least compared to now, it's an extreme version of uh, what we'd call community. Their koinonia, if you look at the Greek word, it was shared life. A huge word of the early church was integration. A huge word uh, for society now is individualization. Most of God's kids think that when they're walking in intimacy with God, it's what I call disassociated yada. If my life is not we before me, it's an Americanized version of Christianity. Do you have four to five people? And, and by the way, people who are willing to speak out things in your life that you may not want to hear. Do you have four or five people that know you so well they can finish your sentences and they care more about helping you finish well at the judgment seat than they do enabling your dysfunction by telling you things you want to hear all the time? That right there will separate about 99 out of 100 God's kids that have a really a wineskin that doesn't match the early church. And then today we're going to get into this odd thing called love feast. If you want to throw the circle back up there, we're taking communion at the end of the service. Communion now is going to take about seven minutes. And the early church, as you'll hear me read some stuff, took about six hours. And love feast was once again, if we can leave that there, it's we before me. Going backwards on the circle, vulnerable community, we before me. Word was not take your word by yourself on a silent retreat. It was the apostles teaching. It would have been we and then yield was always we before me. Jesus picked 12 disciples. He didn't pick one. He really had about 120. And then next week, we're going to talk about, Melanie's going to teach on prayer. That's not even, the word out of Acts 2.42 has nothing to do with secret place, you and God. Nothing. It's the place of prayer 
for the public invasion. It's a house of prayer. So it's, um, as Michael taught a while back, the early apostles would have gone at like 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. Here's what we're getting at. And it, I'm not saying this makes me comfortable or it's easy, but post-industrial revolution where the backyard became the front yard and we started building fences and we started hiding, this is what you need to know about the early church. It was out, it was, it was corporate, it was we, way more we. It was way more communal. It was way more shared, way less American. So here we go. This is from Robert Heidler's book, Messianic Church Arising. This is a historical look at the early church. And I thought about just taking some points and teaching it, but I thought, you know what? He did better than I can. So let me just read it. It reads pretty easy. If you want to read his book, it's Messianic Church Arising. I'm not sure which chapter this is. Do you remember, Anwin? I don't know. Uh, it's titled, A Visit to the Early Church. So here we go, quantum leap. Let's get in this fictional time machine. Let's give it a go. A visit to the early church. We've seen the power of the church, how it grew and took over the world in a short span of 70 years. We've sensed the anointing that was upon it, but what was the early church like? What gave it such life and power? In the remainder of this chapter, I would like to give you a picture of church as you've never seen. It's a church most of us have never imagined. I want you to see what the early church was before it died. I pray God would paint this picture in your mind so vividly you would never forget it. A lot of Christians assume that on the day after Pentecost, Peter went out, rented a big building, put a steeple on top, hung up a sign that read First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, and started holding services the next Sunday most of us have not stopped to even grasp what the New Testament church really was. I would like to take you with me to visit a gathering of the early church. Everything I describe will be based on historical descriptions of the first century church, either in the New Testament or in any other Christian literature. As we prepare to visit this church, I want you to get ready for some surprises because you're not going to see much that looks familiar. Most of the things Christians today associate with church simply did not exist at the time. Miriam, can we put the slide back up of the, the five steps? These are five habits that help you step into a biblical model of what we would call ecclesia, an assembly. Those are five habits that the early church showed that made them what we would call church. You know, Christians was a derogatory term given by the Romans. That was, that was like a sarcastic term. They were called followers of the way. And these are five things on a, not even just weekly, but sometimes daily basis, they were orbiting around these five habits. Here we go. No one in the first century had ever seen a church building, a steeple, a stained glass window, a pulpit, a pew, a hymnal, a church bulletin. No one wore a coat and tie. Praise the Father. There was no written liturgy to follow. Most of those things would not become a part of church tradition until more than 1,000 years later. Does that boggle your mind a little bit? I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. We do need to see that the essence of what a church is does not involve these things. The early church lacked all of those things, yet had a power far beyond anything the church today can comprehend. What was the worship of the early church like? Let's imagine we're walking down a street in the city of Rome. It's AD 95. More than 60 years have passed since the day of Pentecost. We're about to drop in on a typical church service in that city. The church we're going to visit is a house church. The early church operated on two levels, the house church and the congregation. Even if the church in the city grew to 20 or 30,000 members, 
its primary unit would still be the house church. From time to time, the house churches would also congregate in a larger group, the congregation. This often took place outdoors or in a rented auditorium. In Jerusalem, they met in the temple courts. The time is Saturday evening. By Jewish reckoning, the first day of the week began at sundown on Saturday. The church meets in the evening because many of the people have to work during the day. We arrive at the door of a typical Roman house and are warmly welcomed by the host. Let me warn you before you go in to be prepared for a serious case of culture shock. What you're about to witness is not church life as you have ever known it. As we walk through the door, you look across the entrance into the large open courtyard of the home. There appears to be some kind of party going on. Some of the people are playing flutes, tambourines, while others are singing, dancing, and clapping their hands. You see, the spirit of religion shut down the model of the early church. You immediately look around to make sure you come into the right house. As you listen to the words, however, you realize that this is the right place for the words of the songs are words of praise to Jesus. These people are overflowing with joy because they have come to know the living God. What you are witnessing is the way the early church praised God. This type of worship is foreign to much of the church today. But from the biblical and historical records, this is what the worship in the early church was like. It was a free and joyful celebration with a great deal of singing and dancing. Most church services would begin with people getting in a ring or several concentric rings and dancing Jewish-style rings like the hurrah. Here's how some early Christian, uh, early Christian writers describe their worship. So this is Clement of Alexandria writing in the 3rd century. This is a long time ago. He describes the daughters of God leading the church in a ring dance. The righteous are the dancers. The music is a song of the king of the universe. The maidens strike the lyre. Is that how you say it, lyre? I don't even know what that is. The maidens strike the lyre. The angels praise. The prophets speak. The sound of music issues forth. They run and pursue the jubilant band. You know, Mike, when you gave that word of knowledge today or what you were sharing from the Lord, if you would have done that in the church that I grew up in, you'd have been escorted out for real. I do have a funny story. Mike got a word one time. There's a little kid beside beside him. This church is wide open to whatever God wants to do. And Mike screamed, thus saith the Lord. And that little kid, his arms went straight out, and he later asked his parents in the parking lot, was that, G- was that the blind man screaming for Jesus? <laughs> what you are witnessing is the way the early church praised God. This type of worship is foreign to much of the church today. But from the biblical and historical records, this is what the worship in the early church was like. It was a free and joyful celebration with a great deal of singing and dancing. Most church services would begin with the people getting in a ring, I think I just said that. All right. All right. All right. So the maidens strike the lyre, the angels praise, the prophets speak, the sound of music issues forth. They run and pursue the jubilant band. Those that are called make haste, eagerly desiring to receive the Father. That was in third century. Ambrose of Milan, the man who led Augustine to the Lord, writing in AD 390, exhorted his people to worship with these words. Let us dance as David did. Let us not be ashamed to show adoration of God. Dance uplifts the body above the earth into the heavenlies. Dance bound up with faith is a testimony to the living grace of God. He who dances as David danced, dances in grace. How about St. Basil, 4th century? Great name, by the way. There's some great names on stage today, by the way. Mighty, August, Glory. My wife informed me the other day that Chad is the male version of the Karen from all the Karen jokes. I'm Karen. I see Karen back there. It's funny, Karen, when I hear your name, I, I've gotten all the Chuck Norris jokes, and now Karen gets all the Karen jokes, but I'm the male version of Karen. Don't be a Karen. 
don't be a Chad. St. Basil, great name. Makes me think of spaghetti. Could there be anything more blessed than to imitate on earth the ring of dance of angels? Maybe dancing's a part of God. I don't know. I'm going to go out on a lamb. That's why we got space up here. A lot of white people in here, but there's grace for that, okay? Some of y'all dance, it's like, I'm glad the Father loves you, because that's awkward. This picture of the church rejoicing before the Lord and dance comes as a surprise to many people. Many people have thought of the early church's worship as somber, quiet, and almost mournful. It was when Constantine got his hands on it, Roman emperor. He took the church out of the homes. That concept of church worship, however, did not become prevalent in the church until after the 4th century when the church was overrun by the uh, pagan philosophy. In Augustine's day, AD 400, opposition to dancing was rising, but he urged the people to keep the sacred dances. So here we are in a large courtyard. There's a great deal of singing, dancing, and rejoicing in the Lord. By the way, we're about to get to communion. Some of y'all are about to be shocked what communion was called. It was called agape dinners with this weird thing called wine and dancing and singing and this bizarre thing called happiness. Hello, Father. It's a joy to worship with you today. Woo. If we get the correct model of church, Young people will actually want to be a part of it. Young people are flocking away from the church in droves, not because they're not interested in the love of the Father, who he is, and what it means to fear him, but because so many models misrepresent who God is. God is actually, God is a very joyful person. The Lord's first miracle was at a party. God's not boring. You are. Praise the Lord. After much singing and dancing, food is brought out. Can I get a hallelujah? People find their seats, prepare for the meal. During the church's praise and worship, there are spontaneous shouts of praise. Some shout amen. They have voiced their agreement. As we enter into worship, we're overwhelmed by love and acceptance. It's basically like going to Trader Joe's when they're not out of orange chicken. Is it unbelievable how Trader Joe's is always out of orange chicken? We are surprised to see people eating a meal in the middle of a church service. I knew I loved God. I knew it. I knew it. you imagine this? I used to sneak crackers in to my Baptist church when I was growing up. And when I'd open the wrapper. It's so, it makes adults so nervous when you're just fiddling around with that wrapper for like four or five minutes. You know what y'all ought to do? Start bringing some, bring some burritos in here. Eat them in. But this is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians as well as by Jude and Peter. So for those of you going, well, he, he can't prove it in the scripture and it just makes me nervous. I just don't agree. I know he's a man of God, but I just need to see some scripture. He hasn't quoted scripture yet this morning. Well, get out your pen and journals. You ready? This is Paul three times, sister. To begin the meal, the woman of the house of lights, the candles, saying a spe special prayer of thanksgiving, then one of the leaders stands up with a cup, blesses the Lord, passes it around so each one can drink from it. He then picks up a loaf of bread and offers thanks, and yes, I said bread. So many people are turning away from bread. He's the bread of life. Was it gluten-free bread? I don't know. I have no idea. It also is passed from person to person. Everyone say, we before me. This is the Lord's Supper in original context. 
The meal is a joyful time centered on devotion to the Lord. As they eat, the believers talk about the things of God, share testimonies, recite and discuss scripture, and sing praises to the Lord. You're impressed that while very few have personal copies of any biblical books, most of these present appear to have large portions of Bible memorized. During the meal, one of the leaders stands and reads a letter they received that week from the apostle named Junia. Junia was not one of the original 12 apostles, but by this time there were many apostles in the church. As you hear the letter read, you were surprised to learn that Junia is a woman. You know, just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Just because I, we've come up with a model of church that feels comfortable with us doesn't mean that Paul would know what in the world we're doing down here if he were to be opposite transported. And if he were to quantum leap down here, he'd be like, what, what are we doing? There are people who left our church, and I, listen, I get it. I don't agree with it. Only because someone like um, Joanna would speak from stage last Sunday. How about this? For the first time in your life, it may be worth it being mature enough to pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. I'm serious now. I'm serious. Because a lot of you are abiding in a religious spirit and you don't know it. And here's what's sneaky about the religious spirit. It's the most sneakiest of all the spirits in the unseen realm. It seems so right. It just seems so controlled and so neat. So Junior stands up. In Romans 16, Paul describes a woman named Junior as an outstanding among the apostles. That is Romans 16 of your Bible. You can read that, and you can share it with people who can't stand it when you read that. Just read it to them softly. It makes it better. The leaders of this house church had written to Junior several weeks earlier to seek advice on some issues, and in her letter, Junior carefully addressed each of their questions. It is clear that all the present hold Junior in high regard, for they all pay careful attention as her letter is read. After the meal ends, worship continues until at some point a change begins to take place. There's a subtle shift in the atmosphere. The air seems to thicken. A tangible sense of the presence of God comes and rests in the place. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 describes it this way. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Those who have studied revival literature recall that a tangible sense of God's presence has frequently accompanied the great revivals of history. The manifest presence of God is, in fact, the hallmark of true revival. In the presence of a holy God, sinners find salvation, backsliders find repentance, and the miraculous becomes commonplace. Guys, do you understand the number one metaphor for the kingdom of God in the Bible is feasting? There are way more passages on feasting than fasting. Many of you will be shocked to learn the party nature of the Father's heart even when you get to heaven. This Jewish celebratory weddings last a week. He's not in a hurry. He's an amazing God. And Satan has given the American church an ambient pill and we've fallen asleep not only to his heart but to his ways. And there is a methodological reformation at hand and God is shaking his temple. If, if the Lord tarries within 50 years, you'll have to write history books on what the model of the church looked like in America. And we'll all be in heaven probably by that time to see if that word came to pass. But I'm telling you, he has shown me that this end time move of God, he's shaking the methodology and the methodology of the church is going back to what it was when the king of glory came here. The, the method of the church that he laid down on the ground was one that was inviting and warm and natural and full of hospitality and kindness and feasting and forgiveness. It wasn't just some controlled system that told people what to do, when to do, and how to do it.
There's something about food that breaks down barriers. I mean, for heaven's sakes, how many restaurants do we have in Greenville now? It's like, well, have you heard about the new restaurant? They make tacos actually, well, they make them the same way as all the other places, but it's a new place. And it's no different from the other 35. But you know what? We're like, ooh. Have you heard about the new coffee place? This place has, they have coffee. There's something in us that we really are wired for connection, man. And food connects us. How about this? When Simon Peter gets restored, it's over a barbecued meal. Isn't the Lord awesome? Some of y'all just need to get you a smoker and find God. Those who have studied, in the early church, this was a weekly occurrence. When the members of the body assembled, they came living stones forming to the temple of God. Forming the temple of God. As the presence of the Lord had once filled Moses' tabernacle, Exodus 40, and the temple of Solomon, 2 Chronicles, so the presence of God filled his new temple, the church. This is what Jesus promised. Where two or three come together in my name, there I am with, with them. I'm getting a word of knowledge right now. Many people don't ever feel worthy of a stage. There was no stage for 350 years in the early church, but you've actually been given a literal gift of hospitality, and the altar is in your home, and you're looking for God in all the wrong places of where, where's the stage. The stage is in your home. I'm not kidding. You, you, you've been tricked, and you've taken the bait. Is this church? Well, the building's not. We are. But think about your home as like an embassy. So many people are looking to connect with God in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong places. You have an opportunity to host people in your home. You may not be famous. You may never write a book. You may have seven followers on Instagram and six of them came out of your womb. Well, praise the Lord, just host people well. As those assembled since the presence of God, some fall to the ground and worship. Others stop and are silent, welcoming the Lord's presence. As the presence of God rests in their midst, ministry begins to take place. 1 Corinthians 14 describes the Holy Spirit sovereignly manifesting his gifts as his people assemble. A woman on the far side of the courtyard stands and gives a word of knowledge for healing. A man raises his hand. That's for me. People cluster around, pray for him. He's instantly healed. Someone else stands up and reads a passage of scripture. Another man, a teacher, gives an explanation of the passage. A woman stands and gives a beautiful prophetic song. Many are so touched by its beauty and anointing, they begin to weep. Prophetic words are given. Their tongues and interpretations. Through it all, they continue to move in and out of worship, in and out of worship, in and out of worship. This scenario is clearly described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is how the early church met and ministered. At one point, a man introduces a family who have been sitting quietly near the back of the crowd. They are his neighbors. You can tell by the look on their faces that this is their first time here, and they're not sure they're in the right place. The man says they've come tonight because their 12-year-old daughter has contracted an illness that has left her totally blind. They've come for the church to pray for her. Those with the gift of healing come and stand with the elders as they anoint the little girl with oil and pray. And suddenly, the little girl begins to cry. With tears running down her cheeks, she cries out, I can see, I can see. The mother crouches down and hugs her daughter, and within four or five minutes, the entire family is saved, giving their hearts to Jesus. A prophetic word is given, revealing the secrets of someone's heart. That person comes forward and says, I don't know Jesus, but I know God is here. I want him. Ministry continues. This is where much of the evangelism in the church took place through the miraculous power of God working in the midst of his people. Most of us don't even have a concept of that happening, but it was the norm in the early church. Irenaeus, around AD 195, tells us that in his day, prophetic words, tongues, and miracles of healing were so common in the church. He adds that the church frequently saw people raised from the dead through the prayers of the saints. 
Early in his walk with the Lord, Augustine had expressed doubts about the miraculous. After witnessing many examples of the miraculous healing in his own church, however, he publicly retracted his earlier statements and devoted much of his life to a ministry of healing. That's a wild story. Augustine is a big deal in church history. He repented towards the end of his life. He commented, miracles have no purpose but to help men believe that Christ is Lord. On Augustine's deathbed, he died for three or four minutes. His disciples and family were around him. And then he came back into his body and he said, I have seen the Lord and everything I have written is but straw. He is magnificent. And then he died. In the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Gibbon described the life of the early church this way. The primitive Christians perpetually trod on mystic ground. They felt that on every side they were incessantly assaulted by demons, comforted by visions, instructed by prophecy, and surprisingly delivered from danger, sickness, and from death itself by the supplications of the church. Our meeting of the church has now run late into the night, but no one seems to notice. Finally, the meeting begins to break up, and the sense of the Spirit's presence begins to lift. But there are still several small groups gathered in prayer. As people prepare to leave, there's a great deal of hugging, kissing. It seems like family reunion, and it is. Wouldn't that be awesome if you went to a church that felt like a family reunion? It is the weekly reunion of the family of God. Miriam, can you put the, the slide back up? Because here's where it gets fun, because I'm about to talk about the agape meal. What was communion? Now, it was called a love feast. And I just want to read again. This is another article, and it's just, it's just better if I read this in, instead of trying to just recite it. Okay. If you were to ask the ordinary Christian today what a Christian meeting was like in the days of the apostles, you would probably get different answers. An evangelical Christian would probably answer that it consisted primarily of preaching and singing. A charismatic Christian might reply that it primarily incorporated worship, praise, and the exercise of miraculous gifts. An Anglican might reply that it was principally a celebration of the Eucharist. Well, of course, all these responses are partially right. However, a rather dominant part of apostolic worship that few Christians would think of today was centered around a meal. That's right, a meal. The early Christians referred to this meal as the agape. Even after the death of the apostles, the pre-Nicene church continued to practice the agape or love feast. Yet within a century or so after Constantine's conversion, this important part of the apostolic worship totally disappeared. I want to close today by asking this. What if God is giving us habits that we know are biblical but are uncomfortable for our normal cultural rhythms? What if God's asking you to take 12 locks off your front door and open up your home to those he ordains to fellowship with you? What if the goal is not just to connect with people that go to what you call Garden Greenville? What if actually he's trying to open up your eyes that your neighborhood is your target, your school is your target, your son's football team that you coach is your target? A lot of people don't feel worthy to do deeply spiritual things you do feel worthy to eat. I'm serious. A lot, we over-spiritualize God most of the time. A lot of us are more spiritual than God is. When's the last time you just had a meal with someone that may not even have your same theology? <gasps> uh, what if the universe explodes because we have a different eschatology? You're going to be fine. God will help you. Just eat. Eat some carbs. It'll calm you down. Everything's going to be fine. What we're trying to do here is partner with Holy Spirit as he develops a culture of a different type of methodology at the Garden Greenville. One of the most powerful things you will ever do is think the way God thinks. So I'm going to say three words real quick, and then we're actually going to worship, and we're going to take some communion together. And, and you know what? One day, 
when the, when the staff is in place and we have enough manpower to, to pull this off, we're probably going to shift the way we do communion, honestly. Imagine taking communion right now for the last 40 minutes. All you can smell is delicious food all over this room. It'd be the quickest sermon any preacher ever did in his life. What if God is establishing here over the next three years an ethos, a rhythm, that may not look just like the early church, but you know what? It looks more like the early church than a lot of places, not because you're trying to be cool, but because you're trying to be biblical. What if your house, even if you don't own it, your apartment, your college dorm, what if that's actually the place you're ordained to exercise a gift of hospitality that perhaps he's given you? Sam Norris gave me a word when he was 14 years old. He's, he was right over there. He said, Dad, the Holy Spirit showed me that cheeseburgers can bring people to Jesus. I said, that's true. That's very true. There's a church, I want to say, in Myrtle Beach that went from like 100 people to over 1,000 people because they started eating together on Sundays. What would it look like if we, instead of taking communion in, I don't know, two or three minutes, started these agape love feasts? My dad used to say about certain athletic players, that guy's just dumb enough to win that football game. What he meant by that was sometimes you just find a person that just says, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm just dumb enough to lead us to a place where we continue to see this church shrink because God's trying to create a family, not a corporation. God's success card is not butts and seats. I wrote a book called God is Shaking His Temple. My final conclusion is this. I'd get an F. And y'all can come on up here, Millie. I would get an F in seminary because I've had four conclusions. But watch this. Wendy and I were coming back from Spartanburg the other day, and we passed this church, this Lutheran church, that said, come and grow with us. Wendy looked at it and said, how come when I see that sign, the first thing I think of is numerical growth? Well, because we're American. It was about 15 years ago they came out with this uh, top 100 fastest-growing churches in America. What is that? It's just, it's not even, it's not something to God. What is something to God? Come, let us grow together. Let us grow deeply into him together. And you know what? Maybe these five habits are still just as good for 2023 as they were for a long, 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 long time ago.